Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, y'all. I brought my y'all from, I was in Atlanta the last couple days. So uh, if you're wondering, they say, they say y'all a lot. It's the South, so that's how that works. Um, Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I want to say great job, but I don't want to play into your achievement thing. So, I so you did an above-mediocre job. We're proud of you. Is that, is that good? Uh, I remember uh, reading, a, it was like a, a little video, and it was like talking about how to encourage your kids. And it was like, don't like, when they give you an artwork, like don't, you know, don't say it looks really good because you don't want to like puff them up, and then like don't say it doesn't look good. And I'm like, what do I say? Like, well, I just it looks great. It looks exactly like me. Thank you, Junia. Like, so sometimes I just like it's just funny how uh, great job. We're proud of you. So thank you for sharing your story. One of our values at Contrast is that we believe that everybody has a story uh, to share, and it honors God to be able to talk about it because God is not wasting His time with you, and uh, and we should never diminish His handiwork. So I'm just appreciative. And if you've been coming for a while, we do this a lot. I mean, we tell stories a lot, and uh, it's one of my favorite things. So it also makes this easier because I feel like. Y'all have already been preached to, basically, by her, so uh, I just get to come up here and talk about the Bible a little bit. So we're going to be in John, if you have your Bibles. I'd love for you to turn there. We have some in the back. Alec can get you one right now, if you'd like, and take it home and steal it. Uh, John 8, I'll get there as well in mine. And uh, we've been in John for for several weeks. We like to take our time sometimes in the the books that we're in, and... um, this is week 16, actually. What's really cool is, uh, if you didn't know, Easter's coming up soon, which we're very excited for. And we as a church celebrate what we call Holy Week, which is uh, Palm Sunday the week before the Holy to Easter. So there's a really cool app that we'll do, and we do readings every day that would be the scriptures that, that honor what is happening during that Holy Week. Um, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading. Uh, over 25% of those Gospels is just on that week. So when you read the Gospel, you realize that every, you know, a fourth of it is just about that week. So I'm really excited for that. And so John, right now, we're in Chapter 8, but we're going to be working our way up to uh, that section and going through that. So I'm excited. Uh, you're in John 8. We're going to be in verse 12. And uh, last week, if you were here, you, we had a, kind of an interesting teaching uh, about a really popular passage a woman caught in adultery. I like to call it a couple caught in adultery because it takes two to tango, as most of us know. Uh, and the passage is bracketed, and you're like, what does that mean? And I, I, I'm gonna not going to depth today. You can listen to the podcast last week. But uh, in the original manuscripts, it wasn't there, and then 500 years later, it was. And so there's a controversy of whether or not it should be in the Bible or if it should be in John or if John wrote it. Long story short, the reason why I'm telling you this now is because we're going to be in, start in verse 12, but if we were to act like that, that passage wasn't there, and you go back to John 7, 52, uh, it's continuing from that thought. So to start us off, what is, what is occurring right now in this moment, in this context that we're reading this passage, Jesus is in the temple during what we call the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Um, if you were a Jewish person in the first century, you spent basically four weeks of the year celebrating these four Jewish festivals, and so, you know, maybe some of you only get two weeks. Sorry about that. But Jewish people got minimum four because they had to go back to Jerusalem and participate in this festival and save money for it. And it was fun. Um, but the Feast of the Booths was a reminder 
of what God had done through the Israelites being led out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land where they reside now. And in that, it was, it was a reminder specifically of the ways that God revealed himself to them. Uh, during the day, it was a cloud that they would follow, right? And if you thought that was ambiguous, then at night it was a pillar of fire. So if you're wondering, is this the right cloud? At night it would turn into a pillar of fire. So then I think you'd know if you're following the right cloud uh, because it's a pillar of fire. But they followed that, and that's where God brought them. And so they were basically just sitting in this reflection. They would do different things throughout the week. And so Jesus is here at a very busy time in Jerusalem, and he starts teaching people in the temple courts and saying some pretty provocative stuff. The religious leaders don't like it. They're trying to argue with him and attack him. And so two weeks ago, we, we left off on verse 52. Um, the religious leaders had tried to arrest Jesus like two different times. One, they tried to get people just to take him away. Then they got officers, and they sent the officers, and then the officers came back, and they're like, he's got some pretty cool stuff to say. You know, we don't want to arrest him. And they're like, are you kidding me? You know? And so now... now Nicodemus ends that with saying, hey, why don't you go and see Jesus? Like, why don't you hear from him? Why don't you listen to him? You can't accuse someone without first hearing what they have to say. And so then that would bring us naturally to verse 12. And this is Jesus in a new teaching. Um, and, and one last contextual thing about this is John, in his whole writing of his gospel, focuses on seven teachings and seven uh, signs. Teachings is another word for discourse. We use the word discourse here at it just is a better way to think of it. But seven teachings he gives and seven signs. The number seven in the Jewish culture meant perfection, wholeness, completeness. So this is the curriculum of Jesus, if you will. John is focusing on seven of each. And so this is the sixth discourse. So we're almost towards the end of his teachings. And, uh, and this is called the light of the world. So if you've heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world, this is where this comes from. So I'm going to read. And we're going to go through a lot of verses, but we're going to kind of just break up chunks. And so we're going to start in verse 12. And I'm going to read a few verses. It says, Then Jesus spoke again, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees objected, If you testify about yourself, your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Because I know where I came from and where I am going. But you people do not know where I came from or where I am going. You people judge by outward Appearances, I do not judge anyone, but if I judge, my evaluation is accurate because I am not alone when I judge. But I and the Father who sent me do so together. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I testify about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And they began asking him, well, who is your father? And Jesus answered, you do not know either me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father too. Jesus spoke these words near the offering box while he was teaching in the temple, of course, and no one seized him because his time had not yet come. This is common language we see in the Gospel of John. You know, he says something really provocative or edgy, and um, they, like, want to take him away, and it just is like, his time has not yet come. We don't really know what that means. If he, like, did a little magician trick and disappeared, or if he, like, you know, um, just ran away or whatever, we don't really know. It just seems like God did not want Jesus to be taken in that moment. And so that's kind of what they're saying here. Um, But this is one of Jesus' I am statements. There's several I am statements throughout the Gospel of John, and each of them are identity pieces for us. It creates this almost like a stained glass window. It creates this vignette of who Jesus is and all the kind of components of him and what he's fulfilling as he comes. So each each, each one is for us able to understand a deeper understanding of Jesus. And so when he says, I am the light of the world, the Greek word light is actually phos. You're making the connection now, our coffee cart, phos coffee. 
Uh, yeah, there we go. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or FOS, if you don't know, you can say that. Uh, we'll just judge you a little bit. But uh, FOS, it means light. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. Now, remember this in the context. He's in the temple and he's talking to all these people. He just earlier said, right, I can be the living water. So he's drawing in all these uh, powerful symbols that the people would be able to understand. He says, I am the living water. The spirit of, of me, which is the Holy Spirit, is the living water that will give you life and life everlasting in abundance that will overflow. And he's saying that in the same setting that they would have done this ritual where they would take water from the pool of Siloam locally near Jerusalem and they would pour it out as a reminder of how God let water come out of a rock through Moses in the wilderness to quench their thirst in the desert. And he says, I am the living water that you will never thirst again. And now he says, I am the light of the world, which is a reminder of when they would do the big fire, like, festival, I don't even, you maybe think like throwing torches, but maybe not that, like theatrical, but they would do fire, like a fire ceremony to remind them of the pillar of fire, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and so he is drawing in the people's understanding into a much deeper, more fulfilled way, and so he says, I am the light of the world, and he says, the one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's such a powerful, like, it's funny, I didn't even know what to write, because I'm like, I just, he's the light of the world, I don't know, like, what else do I say to that, <laughs> you know? I don't know if I even need to explain it, um, but the simplicity of it has really powerful ramifications in our life. I think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and how we know that we're still in a world of darkness, and so we have these moments where we succumb to darkness, or we feel just, like, burdened by darkness, uh, or our relationships around us are uh, walking in darkness, and it's just really hard to feel like you're the light when everything around you is dark. Um, but it's so just encouraging to remind ourselves that, that the light is truly life-giving. It's truth. And Jesus is not here to give us a burden of darkness, right, um, but to give us life. And so he, he kind of says this, this provocative thought, and then now he's going to unpack it. And the problem is, is the Pharisees don't like any of this, so they're just kind of arguing back and forth with him. And so some of this feels, like, really interesting. They're like, why are they saying that? Why are they saying this? Like, they're saying your testimony isn't true. It's just you. Basically, what they're doing is they're losing. And if you've ever, has anyone ever lost an argument before? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, a couple of you. I know who's prideful here. Um, and they, you, you, when you start losing, you start getting cheap. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I'm going to deflect. I'm going to, like, pick at their grammar. I always love this on Facebook when, when we were on it. It was like, you get in an argument, and then someone would be like, it's they, not there, or something like that. It was like, that's, that's where you want to go with this argument, right? It feels like that. They're like, well, you're by yourself, so your testimony can't be true. That's literally, that's how low they're getting. They're like, well, he's saying some good stuff. Well, he's by himself, so your testimony can't be true. And Jesus says, you know, in this culture, you have to have two witnesses, right? And so then he brings in the Father, God the Father, and that's even more provocative to them because they're like, there's only one God, Yahweh. You don't get to claim that he's your witness. Like, that's not fair. So that, that's what he's doing, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so then he says in verse 21, I, I am going away, and you will look for me, but you, will not, but you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jewish leaders began to say, perhaps he's going to kill himself, because he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus replies, you people are from below, I am from above. You people are from this world, I am not from this world. Thus I told you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus shifts from this understanding of him, the Father, to this, this deeper sense of his relationship with the Father in his heavenly realm. Jesus is not of this world. He came into this world. And 
this is probably, I would say, the most um, aggressive teaching of Jesus that talks about the weight of our sin. He says three times, you will die in your sin. And, you know, he's talking to religious leaders, but he's also in the temple courts. We know he's, like, in the treasury area. There's tons of people there. And he's being very clear that you will die in your sin. And sometimes I, I think we forget the reality of that and uh, that Jesus cares about that, that he acknowledges that, that he draws that forward. And his response to dying in your sin is believing that I am he. That doesn't make any grammatical sense to us. If you're like, hey, do we trust this guy? He is he. We're good. Don't worry. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. What does that even mean, right? Like, uh, but there's a long tradition in the Bible of this phrase, I am. Uh, John has several I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Later, I am the good shepherd. These identity pieces I talked about, this stained glass vignette. But in the Old Testament, God, uh, God of the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, right, the one who the Jewish people, this is the one and true God, would say, I am. And so he's drawing upon that for these people. And one of the most famous statements of I am is when Moses goes to the burning bush and God calls him into this radical new life of vocation, of taking the people out of, out of Egypt. And he says, well, who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God just says, I am, basically. And he's like, that doesn't, that's not a name. It doesn't make any sense, right? But what God is saying by saying I am is that simple. I am. Like, I am the creator of all things. I am in charge and in power of all things. I don't need a name because I am, right? And, uh, and so the, 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 Jew, you know, the Jewish people would know that. And so when Jesus says these little I am statements, they start to poke at that idea. And he's claiming these really wild, radical things. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life, right? And, and people are starting to clue in on, like, wow, that's, that's prophetic. That's powerful. And they're starting to figure out, is this Jesus truly the Messiah? We'll get back to the I am at the end of this story, and it will cause a lot more tension. But in this case, he says that I am he. I am the one to believe, and I am the one to trust. And so they say to him, who are you? Classic example, right? If you say I am, they're like, you are what? You know, you are a firefighter. You are six foot tall. You are 39 years old. Like, what are you? And they say, who are you? And Jesus replies, what I have told you from the beginning. He's like, stop trying to play angles here. I've been very clear who I am. I have said many things. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the Father who sent me is truthful. And the things I have heard from him, I speak to the world. And they did not understand that he was telling them about his Father. And then Jesus said, when you lift up, lift up is another term for crucify and kill, if you're wondering. And when they lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what the Father taught me. And the one who is sent is with me is with me. Uh, he has not left me alone because I always do the things that please him. And so this is once again, I mean, at this point, if you've been following in John, I mean, it is, it is remarkable how much Jesus attaches himself to the Father. And I think we forget that sometimes that uh, his, his teachings and his, he's just like almost obsessive in communicating his relationship with the Father. And that was a massive sticking point for the Jewish people because God is Yahweh, one true God, no other God. And he keeps saying, I basically am, um, the God is my, my father. It was provocative for people to understand in that statement. But verse 30 is really, is really interesting because it says, while he was saying these things, many people believed in him. And I don't know about you, but I mean, you listen to this little teaching on the light of the world and all this, and, and then you remember what he said a couple weeks ago, right? I am the life, uh, the, the living water. And, and so people are starting to be like, wow, this is, this is interesting. What's confusing about this phrase is believe in him isn't, um, 
it's not necessarily like I'm saved, salvation, Jesus is the way. It's more like I am subscribing to what he has to say. I'm kind of like agreeing with where he's going. This would be similar in a debate if you have two people who are debating and, and someone's making some really good points. You believe in them, meaning that you, what it would mean is not that you may maybe agree with everything or that you've not, you've not concluded your decision on what they're saying, but that you are agreeing with where they're going. And so this is another way of saying that people are starting to be like, man, he's got some good points here. And like these Pharisees are struggling in terms of a debate here, not doing so well. And people start believing in him. And so what he does in verse 31, he turns to these people. He says, then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed in him, and he says this, if you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. We are, and they say, we are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slave. How can you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The, sl- the slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will really be free. It's interesting here that, you know, he turns now to just common people who are like, is this guy really the Messiah? And their lens at their, their um, enslavement is very physical. And they say, we're, not, we're descendants of Abraham. Abraham had this promise a long time ago from God that he would be, they would be a nation of free people that would follow Yahweh. This beautiful calling that everyone subscribed their identity to, if you were Jewish. And they're like, we're not slaves. And that's what they're saying. Like, we haven't been slaves for a very long time. Now, some people could argue, well, you're kind of slaves to Rome. Rome kind of controls you, makes you pay taxes. But they're not, like, enslaving you to work like you were in Egypt. But they're thinking at such a physical level. They're thinking, man, my life right now is not that bad. I'm not enslaved. Who are you to tell me that I am? And if I'm honest, this is the exact same reaction people have when you tell people they live in sin. They're like, my life's fine. I make money. I'm happy. My family's happy. My wife is happy. My kids are fine. Like, I'm not. I'm fine. I'm not enslaved. Like, you know, you have this drastic thinking. Well, I'm not like, I'm not like, uh, you know, murdering people. I'm not in jail. Like, I'm not, it's not that bad. I'm not that bad. It's, it's, there's people worse, right? And, and in the same way, they're, they're kind of saying the same thing. Like, we're descendants of Abraham. Like, we're fine. We've, we have a promise, and they are uh, essentially abusing the promise to, to not acknowledge the reality of what Jesus is getting to. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't say, oh, yeah, you're slaves to Rome. No, he says, no, you're slaves to sin. He pulls it into a deeper dimension, and that's Jesus' heart. Is sin is the baseline. Sin will lead into slavery by Rome or slavery by Egypt, right? That's the result of sin. But sin is the baseline, the much deeper reality that we experience. And so just the same as, as there are people in the world right now, a lot of the world, I don't know a metric, but a lot of the world that is literally slaves. There's a lot of people, though, everyone is enslaved to just sin, whether it is slavery or it's slaves to, to fashion or to drink or to whatever it is, right? Slaves to sin. And... He says, uh, and he says, I tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. And, and he's, he's basically saying, you have this promise of Abraham, and you're abusing it, and you're thinking that just because you have this promise that you don't need to do a thing, and that you're fine. But the son remains in the family forever. The slave does not. And what he's saying is you need more. Like, this is not sustaining your freedom that you're looking for. And they all know that. Like, the, the sacrificial system was exhausting. 
Uh, people abused it. People abused the rules they were supposed to follow. Pharisees came in and not only abused the rules, but made them harder. And, you know, it's just a mess. It was, it was the, the burden of the law was a common language that people knew. It was like, it was ridiculous. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's because you're enslaved and you're still allowing sin to dictate your life. And so he, he just calls these people out. But he says this unique thing, and I think this is important. We've talked about this a little bit. He says, if you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think sometimes we're mistaken. You know, we think, isn't the truth the gospel? And it's like, yes. What does the gospel require of me? And we would say, well, the gospel is grace given to me. Nothing I can do to earn it, and I can accept it by believing in Jesus. He just said, believe I am he, right? But then we just kind of stop there. And Jesus has far more to say about practicing his teaching and obeying his words than he does about just saying, I am he. And even if he does say, I am he, believe in me, he's following it up with, this is how you do that. And so this, this formula, if you want to call it a formula, says, continue to follow my teaching. You are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is so true in the way that we think about Jesus. You might have had this spiritual experience where, you say, I follow Jesus, I raise my hand, and you might experience like some really powerful freedom in that moment. For me, when I was in college, I grew up in a Christian home, nominally Christian, a little bit in youth group, uh, and then I went to a Christian college to play sports and go for architecture, and um, if you notice, I'm not in architecture anymore, um, and uh, very two different fields, but uh, I, I found Jesus in a deep way in college my freshman year, and I, one of my main, if I had to like call it a web, right? I, m- my main sin, and I think this is probably the root of all sin, is pride. A deep level of pride. And then it, it, would, it, would, it would flush out through um, just inappropriate language. It would flush out through uh, condemning others, being hypercritical. It would flush out through pornography. And one of the, the freeing moments of my con- conversion journey was, man, Jesus frees me from this, this pornography and from this lust. And in that moment and from that trajectory, uh, there was this moment of, like, I feel this weight lifted off me. But I would be lying to tell you that it's still out there, right? Like, that it's not still out there, that everything's just chalk and fine, right? Like, there is a journey of freedom that I experience, but there's a reality that I am not immediately being placed in a perfect heaven. I am still in this sinful world trying to honor the Lord and follow Jesus and, and create kingdom spaces, right, in, in the world that I live in. And so the journey of setting free was true but also the practicing the truth and obeying my commandments so that I might be his disciple, so that I might know him more, so that I might be set even more free is also true. And so you have people who want to claim, like, Jesus set me free, and then a week later they struggle, and they're like, "What this, this Jesus guy is cheap. Like, he didn't give me what he said he would give me. And he's being very clear here, if you continue to follow my teaching. And I'm not here to say, oh, I raised my hand, am I not saved? I'm not here to, I'm not here to talk about that. That's a different conversation. But what I am here to say is, it's possible that you were freed in a, in, in, in a certain way, but you continue to live a life of sin. You continue to practice sin, and then what do you expect? And the, one, of the most, one of the most practical ways, and this is not a selfless plug for our retreat coming up on mental health, uh, we got a few spots left, uh, is, if I can be candid, uh, people want an easy fix for anxiety, um, whether it's medication, whether it's a counselor. And, and, and you, if you know me, you know I, I'm pro all of those things. I've, I go to a counselor. Like, I'm not dogging on it. But what I am dogging on is we want this quick fix, 
right? We want this thing to just go away. And then the rest of our lives is, is placing that back up on an altar. And so a good example of this was social media with our, why we started the quiet year is because everybody was, I'm anxious, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. And we felt like it was foolish to tell people to go do these things that were 1% of their life and let them live the other 99% in ways that perpetuate the continual problem and then be angry that nothing is changing. And I, I just feel like this is what Jesus is getting at in a really loving way. If you are anxious and you go to a counselor one hour a week and you take a medication, that's fine. But if you're on social media 90 hours the rest of the week, that is perpetuating anger and insecurity and identity issues and pornography and all these things, what do you expect? And so the, the spiritual maturity of us and our people that we want to engage with is, hey, let's actually cultivate a whole life that is, is taking serious freedom. And freedom requires discipline. It requires accountability. It requires community. And that's why Jesus says, me is my church, because my church is what helps you do all this work. And so I'm not here to dog on the freedom that you've experienced if you've believed in Jesus, but I also am acknowledging that a lot of you guys and a lot of myself included are struggling because we want the freedom of Jesus without any sort of his following his teachings. And at that point, what's the point of all of it? What's the point of all of his teachings? Why don't we just cut to John 20? He's crucified. He, he raises again. He saved us of our sins. Why do we have all 20 chapters of all these profound teachings of a way to live, of a new kingdom, of a life that we want to be a part of? And I would say because he wants us to obey his teaching as well. And the cultural understanding of Jesus is he saves me, and he can go in that room, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have all my stuff over here. The first century Jew, when they believed in his teaching, when they believed in a rabbi's teaching, they would literally walk behind him. There was no other option. And so for us, it's like, how do we create language where it's like, this is what we want for you. When you raise your hand to follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. Here's what Jesus loves. Here's what he believes in. Um, so I feel like I went on a rabbit trail there, but hopefully that was encouraging. Uh, but another example, I'll give you one more example, then we'll move on, um, is financial, financial trust. This is a huge one, very controversial. Does God, you know, is God not blessing me if I don't have more money? Um, is, am I able to pray for wealth? You know, that type of thing. You know, everybody wrestles with that, different opinions. Here's what I'll say. If you lack financial trust and stability, not amount, if you lack financial trust and stability, because rich people are also fearful of they're losing their money just as much as poor people. If you lack financial trust and stability, maybe being set free from that isn't just prayers and stockpiling. Maybe it is honoring the practice of Jesus, which is radical generosity. It's giving. It's also budgeting, planning. Like there's, there's a parable about budgeting, believe it or not. You're like, I'd love to see that one. <laughs> um, it's budgeting. Uh, and it's having boundaries around simplicity. This sounds silly, but if you want more money, spend less. Very obvious, right? We all know that. But maybe it's simplicity. Maybe I don't really need this thing. Maybe I don't really need this really, really new nice car. Maybe I don't need the bigger house. Maybe I don't need 50 new shirts or one shirt that's worth a gazillion dollars. Like, and, and I think simplicity is all in line with that, right? So living a life of simplicity is placing ourselves under the way of Jesus in a financial understanding the way that we see the world in a way that provides trust and clarity. And this is why the disciples, he sent them out and he said, take nothing. Why did he say take nothing? Because if anything good happened, they would be like, it was the Lord, right? Like they didn't have any way to be like, well, I did have $100 and I paid this guy to stay at his house and he fed me. So that was the Lord, right? Like, no, they had a, a staff and they walked to these places and they just, the, the whole, every fruit they saw was 100% from the Lord. 
And I would say that that's the case in our lives, but we can, it is 100% from the Lord, but we can still justify, well, I made this money, and well, I'm generous, and well, I have this thing, and we take ownership. But that's the same idea. If we are dealing with financial trust and stability, maybe it isn't just prayers, but there are practical ways that Jesus calls us into financial love. Uh, the last one I'd say is relational strain. Maybe if you're experiencing relational strain in your marriage and your friendships and your family, it isn't just praying for that person. It is you doing the work in your heart and life to be a better person to them. Um, you always have something to own. And, and if, you, if you're just saying, well, it's on them, that's just not the way of Jesus. And so Jesus not only has the power for freedom, and I would say this, but his teaching is also freeing. And I think that's so important for us to remember that Jesus in this moment can free us, but that his teaching continually frees us in a world full of sin. So verse 37 he gets into, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I am telling you the things I have seen while with the Father. As for you, practice the things you have heard from the Father. Notice how the word practice is. Like, this is the fourth time we've heard it. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus replied, if you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham. But you are now trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You people are doing the deeds of your father, and then they said to Jesus, we are not born as a result of immorality. We have only one father, God himself. So you can see how they're picking at this and they're relying on Abraham as their identity. And Jesus is like, well, you're not doing anything that Abraham's family does. You know, one of the mantras we have in our family is that Gilmore's share, right? Very simple. I've said it probably 5,000 times. Sometimes I got to say it to myself, right? Trey Gilmore's share. And when Gilmore's don't share, they are not honoring the spirit of the Gilmore family. Abraham says, here you go, and they're not following any of that. He's like, are you really Abraham's descendants? You're not following any of the teaching that was from him, that was from Moses, that was from God. And I'm here to speak on God. You're not following any of this. And they're just trying to lean on this identity, and, and there's no reality of what it means in their life. And he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God, and I am here now. And I have not come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why don't you understand what I'm saying it is because you cannot accept my teaching. There's two pieces in this. All it is is the first thing as a foundational piece of knowing Jesus is love. In verse 42, 42 it just says, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me. It's that simple. The second thing is, is the idea of hearing. In verse 43 and in verse 41, my teaching makes no progress among you. You're not hearing now, remember, when, I, when they talk about hearing, they aren't talking about literally hearing, right, like physically hearing the words of Jesus. They're talking about heeding, taking the teaching and, and embodying it is an idea of hearing. You're not hearing, you're not abiding, you're not listening and accepting my teaching for your life. And so then it gets real spicy. This is like the end here, um, where he says, you people are from your father, the devil, and you want to know what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and did not uphold the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. This is intense. But because I am telling you the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can prove me guilty of any sin? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond because you don't belong to God. This is feisty. Now, if... if if we were to take last week's teaching, when we caught adultery, in line with where it is in, the, in this text, if we were, it's funny because he literally just told all of them, uh, who among you is faultless that can throw this stone, right, on this woman? And none of them can do it. Who is without sin? Go ahead and throw the stone. No one does it. Jesus then could do it, doesn't. And then now he's saying, 
Who, uh, why are you accusing me? I'm, I, prove me of any sin. Kind of the same idea. It's like, I am sinless. You have nothing on me. You have no way to, to call me a sinner and, and a heretic, and, and they're trying to fight for these small little, like, small pieces that they can try to find and prove, but it's not working. And, and, he, and he, just, he just goes straight at him, and he's like, you are not, your father is not my father. It's the devil. And they reply, are, aren't we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan and are possessed by a demon? <laughs> I love that. It's like uh, when someone calls you immature, and then you're like, you're immature. And you're like, shoot, they got me. <laughs> you know, you're like, who wins this one? Is it the one who said it first? It usually is, right? Because, like, if you respond to I, you're immature, that you're immature, that's, you know what I mean? It's like when you repeat someone, every word they say when you're a kid, you know, they, like, mock you, and they're like, stop mocking me, stop mocking me. No, I mean it. No, I mean it, right? It's like, are we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan, you're deemed possessed? And this was the rumor that, like, because he was in Samaria, he, healed the woman, or he talked to the woman at the well. It's this idea, kind of synonymous. They hated Samaritans. They called them, it, by using their ethnicity, it was, it was a term of slander, right? And they're like, no, you have a demon. Because if you're saying we have a demon, then we have to say you have a demon because one of us has to be right, and this is not looking good. You have a demon. And, uh, and they say, both Abraham and the prophets died, and yet you say, if anyone obeys my teaching, he will never experience death. That doesn't make any sense. You aren't greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? And Jesus says, he basically pushes it aside. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. But the one who glorifies me is my father, about whom you people say he is our God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his teaching. And your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He's basically saying, my life proves that I know your God, because my life is perfect by your standards and what God has put into place. And they have no response to that because they are not perfect and they cannot find anything, any fault with him. And so then this is the final blow. This is the end of the passage. The Judeans, you know, they, they disregard all that stuff and they say, you aren't even 50 years old. <laughs> They're like doing math. Abraham was here a long time. You're not, there's no way you could have saw. They say, you, have you seen Abraham? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Then what do they do? They pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and went out of the temple area. The final blow is the culmination of I am with nothing after it. Because I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am living water, is communicating I am this thing. I am this thing. I am all these things. I am is I am everything. And it's the final point where everyone is like, you're either God or you're dead. In this case, both, <laughs> right? They kill him, and he's still God. But you can't, what do you do when you say, I am? He's, he's pulling in all of this idea. And the, the only time, um, the most popular time that God says, I am, like I said, in Exodus, he says this. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's Exodus 3. Jesus is claiming that before Abraham even was, I am. Now, what's interesting, I'm not a grammar person, but uh, one of the commentators, like, it's interesting that he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Because there's no point of time for Jesus. I am is I am. Before, during, after, I am. And that's the idea of John 1, that, John, that Jesus was the word, right? And the word was in the beginning. 
for all things. The word was with God. The word was fully God. It's this reminder that Jesus was not just before Abraham and is just coming down, coming down to earth for a second and then, you know, what, what, what matters, what will happen. He's I am. I am always. And this is the point where people pick up stones. And it's, I think to us, as we wrap up here and we close, this is the moment of tension that we all experience when we have to decide, is Jesus really I am in our lives? Because the things that you want to hold on to, uh, the pride, the, man, just the insecurities you have come to tension with this statement. And you can pick up stones and to defend yourself, right? Or you can drop the stones and humble yourself and repent. And for many of us today, and this is where I just want to spend the rest of the time, um, is just a moment for us to evaluate dropping our stones. Um, and I would say whether you are a follower of Jesus or not to drop your stones, because there are many times that the disciples were following Jesus like with a stone because they were like, I don't really agree with where we're going. We're going to have this here just in case, you know? And uh, it'd be like him sending them out and like hiding a kind bar in your pocket just in case, you know? Like, well, if it doesn't go well, I'll still have one of these bars to eat. It's like, do, are we holding things that we do not trust uh, and we're not letting it go at the feet of Jesus? And so as we wrap up, we do a time of formation every Sunday. We have four things that we believe that you can engage with become more like Jesus. One of them is uh, prayer in the back. People love to pray for you. Another one is um, the uh, bread in the cup, which is up front in the back, gluten-free bread and grape juice as a reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. We also have a giving box. We call it our bringing box in the back to remind ourselves of obedience, faith, and worship and giving, giving back a part of what is God's. And then the last part um, is just reflection. I don't have any questions today because what I would like us to do is I'd like us to just sit in a space of reflection on this very idea. Am I resisting the freedom that Jesus gives me because I'm not obeying his teachings, I'm not practicing the truth, and I'm not even trusting in it? Because if you don't practice it, what it really means is you don't value it. You don't trust it. Um, You can tell me that you're a great dad, but if I look at your calendar and you have no family time, you're not a great dad, right? You're never around your kids. You can tell me that you know Spanish, but if I start speaking to you in Spanish and you're like, huh? You don't know Spanish. Many of us would say we follow Jesus and we have very little indication that that's true in any other area of our lives than this hour we're here. And so I'd love us to just sit in this uh, before the Lord, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the areas in which we do not want to let go because the result when we let go is freedom and truth. And it's light in the darkness. And so some of us have been hiding an area of our lives that we just don't want to bring to the light. And we think we can do everything else and it won't matter that much. Um, And I'm just telling you, you're wrong. And so what I'd love us to do is, I'd love us to just sit and I would love us to just, you'd be willing just to put your hands like this. And we're going to give you some time on your own and just ask the Lord to reveal the darkness in your life that you are not letting go of for whatever reason. And two things. One, to acknowledge that before God. Basically, you're not fighting him. You're like, you're right. I know. And the second thing is is to tell someone And the reason why 
we tell people is because we can play a lot of games in our heads and we tell people because we give them the ability to love and care for us and to invite us into relationship and to realize that what we're doing is real. You know, in the AA community, the whole point of it is you don't do it alone because if you do it alone, you play games. And when you're confessing before other people, you have now let yourself not be the judge. And so it's terrifying, but it's freeing. And so I'm gonna give us time in this space right here and then I'll be here, be people in the back. You can, you can talk to the person beside you if you want. And what we're doing is we're just starting out the next few minutes in freedom, in truth and in light and in freedom. Lord, would you give us freedom? Would we place the things that are dark and that are causing pride, that are affecting our friends and our families and our own hearts, would we place these at your feet? Would your spirit draw those to our minds? Would we place them at your feet? And would we just receive the freedom and the peace and the joy that you give us in this moment? Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.